welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 11, this is the word of the Lord. I just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say. We pray that as we leave here today, we would be different than when we came in. And Lord, that Jesus would be glorified in all that we say and do. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. If you're new here, welcome. My name's Kevin. I'm a lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'll be preaching in English today. <laughs> um, so that's probably good. Um, so we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we just basically are going verse by verse. So we're picking up where we left off last week. This week, it's an interesting focus. And though every week that I'm preaching, I am attempting to explain the gospel to the best of my ability, I think this week is one of those passages where we just have to really examine our hearts and say, okay, am I really understanding what it is that Jesus has done for me? And if you can walk out of here, whether you've grown up in church and you're a Christ follower or you're new to church world, if you can leave here today and say, okay, I don't know exactly where I stand, but I know who Jesus is and I understand what he's actually done for me. Then I will say that we have been successful today. Last week we talked about Jesus as high priest. And one of the things that was interesting about that is we were comparing Jesus as high priest to like a human being as high priest. And those two things in comparison were beautiful to look at. And I brought up in that message last week about the importance of Jesus being both 100% man and 100% God. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can listen to last week's sermon and get caught up. But today we're going to focus on Jesus as man. So I was processing through this, I think when I was growing up as a little kid and I grew up in church and people would talk about Jesus, I understood like, like somebody, they like show me a picture, right? And obviously we know that's not a picture of Jesus. Typically, if you grew up in America, it seems like Jesus was always like white and he had blue eyes and long blonde hair. And obviously we know that's not what Jesus looked like, right? In fact, scripture says he wasn't all that great looking. He wasn't something that you would look at and go, oh, I'm attracted to this guy. Um, we know that he was Jewish, so he didn't look anything like that. And for whatever reason, every time when I was a kid that I saw a picture of Jesus, he seemed to be surrounded by sheep and children. And so that was like my vision of Jesus. And as far as his humanity goes, I think that's as far as I went. Like I, at a young age, I, I think I understood the gospel, at least to the point that I could understand it as a kid. But the idea of Jesus really representing me as a human being didn't make sense to me. Like I pray to Jesus, I pray to God, I pray to the Holy Spirit, we pray to this, 
this Godhead, and it's really hard sometimes for me to make, or as a kid, to make that switch to say, okay, I'm praying to somebody who's human, and it was difficult for me to grasp this humanity, but the humanity of Jesus is one of the most beautiful things that we're ever going to get to understand um, as Christ followers. It's important for us to grasp it, because like last week when I told you Jesus has to be 100% man so that he can represent mankind. (laughs) There's a a shift here that kind of takes place in my head where I say, okay, if Jesus is representing me as a human being, what is he actually representing me for? And that beckoned the question this week, and I've asked this question uh, maybe a few times, it was a couple weeks ago, I think I asked this question, but I didn't really answer it. But if you were to stand before God right now, if you were to die, and you literally just stood before God and He said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Like The answer to that question is everything. Because when you think about the answer to that question, then you're also saying what you believe is your saving factor. Because he's ultimately saying, why do you deserve it? What allows you to walk into the gates, if you will? Why are you here? And growing up in the United States of America as a human being, a male, and saying I, we're constantly having to work for what we, what we want, we, we think that we can be anything that we want, which we learn at a young age is a pretty much a lie. Um, <clears throat> I think that there's this human side of us that believes that we're going to be able to stand before God and somehow justify ourselves to Him through what we've done or what we think that we're going to do in the future. And the reason I think that we do that is because that's what we're constantly doing with each other. As I try to make this as relatable as possible, when you... When you have somebody come to you and you, they say, hey, I'm seeing you do something wrong, or you have somebody come to you and maybe there's a relational problem, or you have acted on something maybe that others around you don't understand, there's this immediate need that we have when we're questioned to begin justifying ourselves for our actions and what we said and why we said it. It's just part of being a human being, right? And if you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, all you have to do is think back when you were a kid, right? and your parents confronted you on something, or whoever was, your head was um, confronting you on something, and they came to you with, you did this wrong, and the first thing you're trying to think of is, how can I get out of this and justify the behavior that I've experienced, that I've displayed? We are individuals who are constantly attempting to create our own justification for everything that we do. It's part of our human nature. it just happens. Um, last night, Christy and I were working on the house a little bit, and we had this moment where I, I guess I got frustrated. I didn't even realize I got frustrated. Right? I was like, oh, I'm frustrated, I guess, internally. And then it, some frustration came out. And then in kindness, she looked at me, and because I was getting frustrated, and she's like, you're, you're getting a little frustrated, and you're not willing to own the fact that you're frustrated. <laughs> And in my mind, I'm going, I have every reason to be frustrated, so let me justify to you my frustration, right? It's, it's so easy for us to, to swing that direction. So then, 
it's, it's a natural understanding to go, all right, if I were to stand before God and I'm trying to understand who this is, and he says, why should I let you into heaven that I can stand there and justify all of my behavior and everything that I've done and somehow convince him that I am good enough or worthy enough to be there? And I think that this kind of plays into so much of just the way that we think as human beings. And so what I want to do today is really push this idea, and I can start this way by saying, if God is who he says he is, and he is, and he's created all things, and he's created you, and he has a purpose for you, and he's sovereign above all things, which we've already been studying, then what is it that you're going to say to God that's really going to impress him? I mean, we just start there. I mean, is it really, is it really impressive for me to say, you know, God, the reason you should let me into heaven is because, you know, I served you for a bit and I was nice to people and I tried to love and I preached and he's going to be like, okay, that's not all that impressive. Just look at the world around you and what I've created and attempt to impress me. We have passages of scripture all over the place that where individuals have attempted to do something like this, where they're attempting to stand before God and the, the end result is they land flat on their face. And if you can just kind of picture this, and I'm a visual guy, I'm always thinking about what the movie version might be of what we're going through. If you can just picture that moment of standing, and I don't, it's not gonna happen, it's all hypothetical, but standing before God and asking you that question and you trying to answer it, it's really important that you develop what that answer is going to be. And then we have to understand what it's grounded in. Human justification is gonna say, everything's grounded in my behavior. There's a, I'll end kind of the, the opening with this. There's like this weights and measures system, I think, that we have, where we go, as long as there's more good than bad, then I'm good to go, right? And I've always thought this, like, wouldn't it be awful if you showed up and that was your justification to God and he's like, you're one deed short. Like, Kev, if you would have just helped that lady across the street, you'd be here. But scales are tipping, man. I'm so, so sorry. I mean, how devastating would that be? I think that there's this, the reason that we justify that is we as human beings are able to compare ourselves to, the, to somebody that we believe is worse than us constantly. So the scales have to have some sort of you know, uh, baseline, right? And if that baseline is we pick somebody who we go, this is the most horrific person that I know and compared to them, I'm great then you go, okay, uh, yeah, God, see, compared to this person, I'm amazing. But how are you in compared to Jesus? All right, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter five. Starting in verse seven, it says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is 
One of the passages of Scripture that I see the humanity of Jesus most exemplified. It says that it begins with talking about Jesus and his flesh. Meaning we're talking about the component of Jesus being a man, a person. He, the post-incarnation, so he has been born a virgin, he is in flesh, he is walking the earth, he is... He starts as a baby, he grows up, he has a family, he, we, we have some interesting stories of him as a child where he goes into the temple and starts teaching a little bit and people say that they're a little bit overwhelmed with how much information he had and his knowledge. Um, we ha- he has a mother and a father, Mary and Joseph. He has brothers and sisters. We, he, he grows up and then at some point his public ministry begins and Jesus is literally walking the earth with his posse around him, right? And preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. That's Jesus in the flesh. He's, he's physically here. He's, he, he, you can touch him. There's that moment when he's risen and Thomas says, you know, I, 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 is it really you? And Jesus says, well, here you can put your finger inside the hole in my hand. I mean, he was flesh. Um, we have individual stories of people coming up and just grabbing hold of him or desiring to embrace him. He, he walked around like me and you did. Um, it's, it's an interesting concept to think that Jesus lived a similar life that we do. I mean, obviously it was a little less modern. But Jesus in the flesh. And it says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. It wasn't an easy life. I've thought about this one a lot because I thought, man, if I was Jesus and I was going to leave heaven and come to earth, I'm going to have it good. Right? I mean, why not? Why would you need to be born in a stable? Why choose parents that aren't really well known? Why live a lifestyle that Jesus actually said there's, there's holes for foxes and there's nests for birds, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? I mean, the life that Jesus lived was difficult. He had people constantly criticizing him. Constantly. We hear this a lot. You know, you're just like, man, you're going through something hard and you're like, when is it going to end? Jesus experienced that. Every time he taught, somebody complained about it. The, a majority of his ministry, we have the religious elite are constantly coming to Jesus and it says that they're setting him up for failure. They're constantly testing him. They're asking him specific questions to try to trap him in what he's saying so they can point him in and say, see, we told you, he's just another guy. When you process the end, I mean, Jesus' life was so difficult that the world around him's answer to the Jesus problem was you have to die. And when you process the idea that Jesus hung on a cross next to two criminals, you realize that the individuals who were seeing Jesus were categorizing him just like those criminals. His life was hard. It says that 
when he prayed, there were tears. There was anxiety. There was like holy anxiety. There was difficulty. He was a person. When somebody criticizes you, it's hard. Jesus felt that. But he feels it at an even deeper level because he created us and he's on mission to save us and yet that's what he's experiencing. There's several pictures of Jesus in his hardship. I mentioned this one last week where Jesus in the the moment where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and it says that he's praying and he's It's so heavy that it says he's sweating drops of blood. He's taken his best friends into this garden where he knows what's coming and he's going to pray. He looks over and they're just sleeping and he's constantly trying to wake them up. And when you just think about that from a human relational standpoint, the difficulty that that would be, the, the, the pain that you would experience, I mean, we disappoint each other all the time, but when you need your close friend because you're about to go something hard, can you imagine like looking over and just seeing them sleeping? (laughs) Moments where he's healed somebody of something, and this happens more than once, where he heals somebody, and then in that healing, the religious elite are saying, well, that's from the pits of hell. Where everything that he did and every way that he lived was so foreign to individuals that they just chastised him and ridiculed him. And We have stories where they said that, that at one point they wanted to stone him and he had to leave. I'm saying all this because I think there's this component of Jesus that though we can't fully relate, we have to relate a little bit. Because otherwise, him representing us doesn't really hit home. Jesus experiences all of the pain that we experience, but at a higher level. Let me read this again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's, it's interesting to think that Jesus learned obedience. We know he's 100% God. We know he's 100% man, but as he's on the earth, it says that he learned obedience through his suffering. Meaning, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to act on the law perfectly. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? I'm gonna reverse the question I asked you at the beginning. If, if God were to, if you were to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You may have a justifiable answer that you think is justifiable, but what if instead you looked at God and said, what would it take to get in? Have you ever thought about that question? Like God, what is actually required? 
And the scriptures talk about this a lot. In fact, the entire Bible is an understanding of what it takes. The scriptures say that what it takes is perfection. Perfection. Perfection not by my standard, but by the creator's standard. Like I see something really cool and I'm like, somebody's like, well, how is it? Like I'll eat a great meal, right? And somebody goes, oh, how is it? And I'm like, it's perfect. Like I overuse perfect a lot, you do too, right? We just, it's just something in our vocabulary we say. And what we're trying to say is I don't know how this could get any better. Like that meal was like spot on. It just hit right, right? Like when you think of perfect, I think we even have like a messed up view of what perfection is. When God says that in order to be with him, we have to be perfect, it means that we actually have to be perfect. From the moment we begin to breathe from to the moment of we take our last breath, we have to be perfect in that entire span. Now, that creates a problem for me because I'm far from it. I can't, I can't seem to be perfect for a day. Like, the perfection that God talks about isn't just the actions that we do, it's the thoughts that we think. Do you know how many thoughts I think that aren't perfect? I've said this recently, like I'm so glad that nobody can read my mind, right? God can, but I'm glad you can't. And you're glad I can't read your mind. Like right now, some of you are thinking things about me <laughs> that I'm glad I cannot read, right? Like just the idea, this concept of perfection where, where God says you have to be perfect to come in immediately disqualifies every single person who will ever be born. And then you go, well, then what's the point? How does it work? Like if I have to be perfect, we're not talking about perfect from this point on, we're talking about perfect from the moment I've been born. How does this function? You realize that nobody had to teach you how to sin? When, when you become a parent, if you're not yet, and the first time that your child lies to you, and they're like, one? <laughs> right? They're like, no, I didn't take the cookie, and there's cookie all over their mouth, and you're like, who taught you that? Like, we don't have to teach self-justification. It's just there. And then... God says, well, if you want to be with me, it requires perfection. And now I'm immediately disqualified. My thoughts aren't perfect. My actions aren't perfect. I don't know what the opposite of perfect is, but that's me, right? And that's you. I've never met anybody that claimed to be perfect. In fact, it'll blow your mind, because as soon as you say that you're perfect, now you've just lost humility. <laughs> It says that Jesus gained obedience 
through the suffering that he went through. And I go, okay, how does that work? We understand what we truly believe and who we are based upon the hardships that we go through. Well, I'm going to actually go through extremes. I think we learn a lot about people when they're not going through hardships and everything is really good. Right? And we learn a lot about people and myself when I'm really struggling. And those, those things really show my personality and my thought process and the way that I function and think to everyone. When we're getting everything that we want, how do we handle it? And when we're really struggling, how do we handle it? As Jesus is struggling, He's living in this sin-cursed world with people that hate Him, attempting to be sinless. It says that His suffering forces Him to learn what obedience truly looks like as a human being. What does that look like? Well, suffering can be, I don't know what it is for you, but every single person I say has at least one fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw is it's a temptation that seems to come your way that you struggle to overcome. Once again, it looks different for everybody. But it's there. You know what it is. I don't have to tell you. I'm looking around the room. Everybody in here is old enough to know what it is. Like if I say, what's going to cause you to stumble this week? If anything's going to cause you to stumble this week, what's it going to be? You can tell me what it is. We know what those things are. It's, it's innate in, in, in us. It's there. We, we know because when we're tested, we've given in. Jesus knows that when he's tested, it's going to show whether he's willing to live in obedience or not. And the scriptures tell us that every single time that Jesus was tested, that suffering showed his obedience to the law. So what does all of this mean? What is this perfection? When I say the entire Bible talks about it, we have this issue where Adam and Eve sin and they're removed from God and it's, it's, it's a big problem. And then as we move through history, God is going to give a law to mankind to say this is the standard by which you need to live in order to display perfection. Now, where this gets confusing is he's handing a perfect law to imperfect people. They're already not perfect. They know they're not perfect. It's crazy. They've already failed. Like, so I was an athlete. And as an athlete, if you want to get better in your sport or in your discipline, you have to learn from the mistakes that you make and say, I don't make that mistake anymore. So I was a soccer player. And if I'm going one-on-one -on -one with someone and I'm going at a defender and I do a move and it doesn't work, I don't want to do the same move the next time I'm going at them. Right? It doesn't make sense because it's going to be another failure. So you adapt, you change, you learn. I get blown away thinking that you have imperfect people and then God says, here's the law and they already know where they're failing and there's the perfection. This is how you have to live and they still can't do it. They already know how they fail and they still can't do it. The entire law, everything that's described in the Old Testament is an attempt to show mankind that we can't be perfect because we can't even abide by the law that God gives even living it in a way to be perfect from this point on for one day. 
It, it's constantly declaring our failure. So, there's a theological term that can sound kind of fancy. It's called righteousness. God says that he defines perfection by saying that an, a perfect individual is righteous. Righteousness is described as holiness. It means that you're meeting the standard that has been set before you in absolute perfection. There's no flaw. It's pure. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm coming underneath the law to fulfill the law and do what you couldn't do, what no person could do. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus lives out the law perfectly, becomes obedient to the law, and therefore obtains as a human being perfect righteousness. Are you following the connection? That's really crazy to think about. He doesn't just show up and say, I'm God, I'm righteous. He shows up, gets tested as a human being, walks in obedience, and is declared righteous through his suffering and obedience. That's, that's overwhelming to think about. When you think about what we can't do as human beings and what he did as a human being, that's overwhelming. Although he was the son, <laughs> although he was God, although he was part of the Trinity, he still placed himself in a position to show what pure righteousness looks like as a human being. When I say that we have to grasp this, we have to grasp this because in order to truly understand the gospel, we have to come in contact with our own sin, our own dirtiness, our lack of righteousness. And we have to come in contact with that because if we don't, then we never get to a place where we say, well, I need somebody to save me because I can't save myself. And then in that question, I need somebody to save me, who is it? The only person that we have that could possibly do it is an individual who actually has achieved righteousness that can represent me and you as a human being. Verse nine, and being made perfect, being declared righteous, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus becomes the source of eternal salvation for others. Jesus, Jesus becomes the source. Like we sing songs and it talks about Jesus being the author of our salvation. This is why we sing that. Jesus becomes the source of the salvation. You don't become the source of the salvation. I don't become the source of the salvation. Jesus becomes the source of the salvation. Which means when if that's true, then when I show up in this scenario and I'm looking at God and God says, why should I let you in? My answer has to be, you shouldn't. 
because I have not met the standard by which is required to come in. Now, human, the human side of this is going to be like, but let me in anyway. <laughs> like, where's the coupon? Where's the discount? But the answer should be immediately, right off the top of our heads. You shouldn't. I, there's no reason. When I compare myself to the picture of righteousness as a human being, I can't compare myself to others because they're not righteous. I have to compare myself to the only one that is. So now my comparison is Jesus. So now, you gotta picture the scene different. You're standing before God, and Jesus is standing next to you, and you say, he says, why should I let you in? And you're like, you know, let me tell you about all the good stuff I've done while you're looking Jesus in the eye. <laughs> it's not very impressive anymore, is it? It changes the way we think and act and look. It changes the way that we view our own personal justification. So now, Jesus is standing there, and our answer to God is, you can't let me in. There's nothing I can do to remove the, the sin from my life permanently. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm tainted. There's nothing I can do to be perfect again. As soon as I've sinned one time, I'm no longer perfect. So I have a problem. So my answer, the answer for every single human being, every single time will be, you shouldn't. And whether you think that you're going to be able to justify yourself or not, that will be your answer. Why? Because in that scenario, you're going to be standing next to perfection, and when you try to compare yourself to it, you're going to fall. But it says that Jesus is the source of salvation. This gets me emotional because what I'm thinking, once again, I'm visual. This is, I'm way overdoing this analogy, but it helps me. I'm standing there next to Jesus. God asked me the question. I said, you shouldn't. And then I look at Jesus. And I said, but him. And then you know what Jesus does? He steps between me and the Father. And he says, my righteousness I give to him. And then the person behind me he says, my righteousness, I give to her. Jesus steps in the gap. He says, look, I'm, I told you last week, it's important that he's 100% God because then he can represent everyone. It's important that he's 100% man because then he can represent us as individuals. So Jesus can literally, as the, the line is progressing through, people are saying, well, I can't, I can't, I don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. Jesus steps in the gap and says, but but you're not gonna look at them, you're gonna look at me. Because I've paid the penalty for everything that they've done. They're not righteous, but I am, and I'm giving them my righteousness. Uh, if you like another analogy, I, I always, I don't know who described this to me, I have a, my undergrads in biology, and so I'm always thinking, and scientifically, I like filters, right? or membranes or whatever you want to call them. And so we have this, this picture of as I'm approaching God, there's this 
filter that has been dropped over me that's basically the blood of Jesus. And when God is judging me on his standard of righteousness, he looks through the filter and he sees Jesus and not me. And then I'm judged on that standard. That has to overwhelm you. Because nobody will do that for you. Every once in a while, I mean, Scripture talks about it. You know, nobody's really going to die for a guilty person. Every once in a while, somebody might die for somebody who they think is good. But the Scriptures tell us that Jesus died while we were still sinners. He died for the ones that were killing Him. Me. He, his blood ends up covering that. So when salvation is birthed through Christ, it's because if I put my faith and trust in Jesus and no longer myself, meaning I'm willing to let go of self-justification, I've just come to the conclusion that that's really what saving faith is. Saving faith is taking everything that I'm believing is going to save me, and that's me. It really is. My self-justification. My, the law that maybe I've created that I think I need to live by. But it's so short of his. The comparison that I make with others who I deem less worthy than me. It's a removal of all of that self-justification and an acknowledgement, I can't do it. I am unworthy. There is nothing that I can possibly do to justify being in the presence of my Creator who requires perfection and righteousness. So I have to take all of that, all of that faith that I'm putting in myself and say, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I deserve nothing but eternal punishment. But Jesus, He did it for me, so I'm going to put all of my justification upon Him. So then it's not just, why should I let you know? Well, I don't deserve it. It's, I don't deserve it, but my faith and trust is in the one that accomplished it. And I'm told that because He accomplished it, if that's where my faith and trust is, then I'm deemed as righteous. That is the gospel. It's a, it's a releasing of self-justification in every way. And that is a really difficult thing for us to do. You know, I remember growing up and people, the, the, the church, they would say, you know, salvation's free, but it'll cost you everything. And I'm like, how is something free that costs you something? And this is, this is how it works. It's free in the aspect that you don't pay anything for it. <laughs> Meaning, I don't have to work to get it. I don't have to achieve a certain level. It's not like, oh, you gotta level up and then here's your next benefit. <coughs> it's there, it's offered. The call goes out. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. 
when you do that, it costs you everything because Jesus takes you exactly as you are but never leaves you the way that he got you. So he says, I'll take you. Jesus says, I didn't come to save the righteous, I came to save the sinner. You realize every single person who comes to Christ is just an absolute mess? Every single person who doesn't come to Christ is an absolute mess. You know what the difference is? The ones that come to Christ are the ones who admit it. I'm an absolute mess. I, I, there's nothing I can do. I can't justify myself, so I'm going to lean into Christ. That's, that's how he becomes the source of salvation to all who obey him. And what does it mean to obey him? Jesus says that obedience to him is believing in the one that God sent. John 6. Believe in me. John 3.16. I don't have to say it. Everybody knows it, whether you believe it or not. It's a transference of justification. Self-righteousness. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I told you we're going to dive into this idea of Melchizedek and it's so, so cool. We're going to get there. But when we talk about the conclusion of last week with Jesus becoming high priest and we understand that Jesus as high priest does what no human being can possibly do, it changes everything. Because then you say, wait, if Jesus has lived the life that I was supposed to live and then died the death I deserved and three days later conquered sin, Satan, and death by rising from the grave and then he offers his righteousness in exchange for my sin and I just put my faith and trust in him and remove all of my self-justification and put all of my justification on Jesus so that his righteousness, it says that he takes our sin, we get his righteousness, so there's this great exchange that takes place. If all of that happens... And on top of it, Jesus sitting at the side of the Father, at His right hand, serving as high priest, then you say, the one of the reasons that I'm willing to make change and that it will cost me everything is because I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for me that I'm willing to do anything. There was a shift in my thinking. Um... I must have been about 22 or 23 years old, and so it was forever ago. And um, I remember processing this in my head. I'm like, Lord, I have, I have absolutely 100% without question put all of my faith and trust in Jesus for my eternal salvation. I knew that. I, I know that. There's no question. It says in the scriptures that if we're to brag on something, we brag on Christ. Christ is my savior. My justification is through him. If I stand before God and God says, Kevin, why should I let you in? The answer is you shouldn't, but Jesus. So you have to. That's a big leap, you would think. I mean, does anybody here grasp eternity? We have this stupid little symbol that's an eight on its side, and we go, oh, that's eternity. And I'm like, okay. 
Like, that's the best we can do. Like, you try to think about you being non-existent. It's impossible. Eternity is just, it's so beyond anything we can process. Right? Marvel has tried, has failed. We even punch holes in that, right? Well, that's not realistic. So many people will say, I put my faith and trust in Jesus for my eternity. But I refuse to give him the 50 years I've got left on this earth. How does that make sense? I don't, like, I came to this realization. I was like, you, this makes no sense. It feels like if I'm trusting him for eternity, I should certainly be willing to trust him for the few years I have left while I'm here. That seems like a bigger jump than this. 50 years versus eternity? That, it doesn't make sense, right? It's like, why is it that I'm so willing to say, I will give you my eternity, but I have to have what I want when I want it now? There's a shift that takes place, and I'll tell you why this happens. It's because we like the idea of eternity, we may put our faith and trust in Jesus, and you absolutely 100% may be saved, but we're so ungrateful that we're not willing to make changes in the process. Because we don't truly grasp this. Because if we did, things would be different. Jesus would be on the forefront of our minds constantly. Problem is, we're not removed from a sin-cursed world yet, and you're not removed from your sin-cursed bodies yet, and you're gonna continue to blow it over and over and over and over and over. And it's so frustrating. But Jesus, to know that Jesus imputes his righteousness onto me, onto anyone who believes, that means that he has paid for every sin that I've ever committed and every sin that I'm going to commit in the future. And that is overwhelming. And that in itself should create a sense of gratitude in us that says I wanna honor you in every way I possibly can, not because I'm trying to earn it, but because you've given it to me. It changes everything. See, where we get this thing mixed up is we want this kind of works-based idea to be grounded in our self-justification instead of our gratitude. And those are two completely different things. So I'm going to ask you this question again. If you were to stand before God and you were to say, why should I let you in? What's your answer? You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be in a place where it's gone beyond just, well, that makes sense. It's actually something that I've reached out and grabbed wholeheartedly. You, when I say you have to come in contact with your own depravity, you have to actually be willing and believe to say I don't deserve it and there's nothing I can do to get it. You have to get to that point. And then as Christ followers, we don't, 
It's a, it's a little bit different. We, we're, we're always at that point. We're always saying that. But you say it from a different perspective, almost in gratitude and celebration. And then that changes the way that you process and think and live. Because it has nothing to do with us. So what's your answer to that question? I don't know everybody in this room, but I will tell you, I do love everyone in this room. Not in a weird way. <laughs> I, I care. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. I, I care that you answer that question correctly. And I love you enough to tell you that if your answer isn't Jesus, you don't have an answer that's going to get you anywhere. So if you're here today and you say, well, I've never... I'm, I'm living my life in self-justification. I'm living my eternity in self-justification. I think that one day, if there is a God, I'm going to stand before Him and I'm going to be able to justify myself. I'm here to tell you, no. It's not going to happen. So what do you need to do? You need to come in contact with your own depravity. Say there's nothing you can do. Get yourself to a, a place where you understand that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and deserve hell because you've sinned against your Creator. And then accept the solution to the problem that He's given you in Jesus by removing all of your self-justification and banking solely in faith on the righteousness of Jesus. And you can do that today. There's a transfer of faith and trust that has to happen. And my, my guess is that if you've never heard the gospel before and that, that that actually is available to you, then you have a lot of questions. And you should ask them. So I will tell you, like we're about to do something that we call religious here in a moment. And I'm going to encourage those of you who don't know Jesus not to fake religion because <laughs> you're not going to fool God anyway. And it's not going to be meaningful. And I'd say if you're feeling like you need to respond to something, then you've got Pastor Matt standing in the back. You can go talk to him. You can come find me. I'll talk to you. We're all in the same boat. If somebody brought you that knows Jesus or you're just sitting next to somebody, you can turn to them and go, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we talk? Don't leave here today attempting to hold on to your self-justification. Because in the end, it's just doom. And you don't have to live that way. For the church, for those of you who are Christ followers, one of the things I've learned over time is that even as Christ followers and this idea of the Gospel, we still bring in aspects of self-righteousness. And my question for you is, what needs to be eliminated? I've asked this question a lot over the, through the book of Hebrews so far, but where is the Gospel in your life not being applied? It could be asked that way. It could be asked in where are you still holding on to use to your own self-righteousness that needs to be released so that Jesus can enter that, that crevice, right? Like, what is it? And so, 
if you're a believer, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are welcome to participate in communion. We take communion here every week. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. Today, I'm gonna encourage you to take a look at that juice and that bread and be reminded that that is your righteousness. It represents it. That the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, it should be your blood. And it should be your body. But praise God, to the glory of Jesus, it's not. It's His. Contemplate that. Whatever analogy hits you, the filter, whatever it is, celebrate the fact that it's His righteousness and not our own be reminded of what it cost him, but most importantly, just from the context of today, praise Jesus for living the life that you can't live. He did it as a human being, therefore he gets it. I'm gonna pray, band's gonna come up, we're gonna sing a couple of songs, the elements are on both sides of the platform here, and you guys are welcome to partake when you are ready. If you need to talk to someone or you just need to come and kneel, fine. This is your time. Do with it as you see fit. But when I prayed earlier, I don't want you to leave here the same. Don't leave here the same. What's the point of that? God, thanks for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, I'm the first to admit that this is hard. I, as a dirty, rotten sinner, it's very difficult to not want to be self-justified. To not believe that I can do it because that's what we actually think. But Lord, would you remind every single person in this room that if we're lying on our own justification, we're in trouble. Would you allow us to stop comparing ourselves to others and start comparing ourselves to Christ? And Lord, would you give us the grace through your Spirit to point out those areas where self-righteousness is still present? Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now who has never given their lives to Christ. Lord, I pray right now you'd remove the heart of stone, you'd give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them the gift of faith, that you would help them to see truth, and that you would relieve them of the eternal burden of self-righteousness. Lord, we weren't created for that. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see Christ for who he is and what he's done. And that they would see him pictured with his arms open wide saying, I've got this. And Lord, for your church, we ask that it would all be about Jesus. Lord, show us the areas where we need work. Show us the areas where we're still holding on to things that we shouldn't. And Lord, help us live in pure gratitude for who Jesus is and what, he, what he's done. And lastly, Lord, I pray that we would all see him high and raised up.
we would understand the beauty of him sitting at the right hand of the Father as our high priest. We love you and we thank you that you don't leave us where we are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.